Good morning. My name is Kathy Rochester, and today's scripture text is Revelation 5, 1 through 14, which starts on page 1030 in the Black Pew Bible, if you would like to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take it with you as our gift. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word in Revelation 5, 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world, into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the, four, and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. As Ben mentioned, we, we are almost done with our series of sermons on the songs of Scripture. We kind of picked out different recorded songs throughout the Bible. And so we have this sermon and then the next uh, sermon next Sunday, and then we'll be done with the series. And then September 9th, we'll be starting a series of sermons on Esther. So you can start reading Esther Uh, It's a great, great book. I'm very excited to to preach on that. Uh, But today we're looking at Revelation 5, which is, uh, and this is important for us to understand, when you read a book like Revelation, we need to understand it's written in a particular genre. And the genre is apocalyptic literature. So other books would be, the second half of Daniel would be like that. There's some uh, Ezekiel, you know, those books that they're really different, they're written in a different way. 
So there are certain symbols, there are certain dramatic events, there are certain things, images that always mean the same thing, and people who are writing these things, the Bible authors, they know what these things mean by and large, and if we kind of understand what the symbolism is, then we can get to the meaning of these books as well. So for example, if you see horns in an apocalyptic book, that always, always means power. If you see seven horns, that's a lot of power, right? When you see eyes on creatures, that's knowledge and wisdom. So when there's seven eyes, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom. So that's how these books work. And, and, and to understand some of those tropes really helps us understand the meaning. And we'll, we'll try to work through some of it in our vision today in uh, Revelation 5. This is John the Apostle who receives this vision from God. He relates it to us. And I would like to divide it into three sections. I'd like to first look at the sealed scroll, secondly at a worthy Savior, and then lastly at a new song that they sing. So a sealed scroll, verses 1 through 4, and then a worthy Savior, verses 5 through 8, and then the rest of the passage will be a new song, a song of worship. So let's look at the scroll. And let me, this is again, we have to do some background on this to understand what's happening here. In the ancient world, they didn't use books like we do with pages, right? What they would do is they would take a page and then would, would stitch it to another page and stitch it to another page, and then you would roll it up, and that's your book. So that's a scroll, and you would unroll it as you read it and roll it back, and then you would seal it and pass it on to someone else if there was some secret information contained in that scroll. And they were typically made of papyrus. And papyrus is made, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you some detail, but it's all going to make sense in just a minute, okay? Papyrus is it's, it's those swampy uh, plants, they're like reeds, and, and you cut the stem into strips, and then you kind of glue these strips together, and then you overlay them with another sheet of strips, and that's how you get papyrus. That's why when you, when you look at it, it kind of it looks rough. And so what happens is, on the one side of that page, on that sheet, you would have papyrus strips going one way, horizontally. On the other side, they would go vertically. And so it would stay together. You would glue it together. So when you write on a papyrus scroll, you really want to stay on the horizontal side of the scroll because it's very hard to write over the vertical strips glued together. So most of the scrolls would be one-sided. So you would write it. It's easier to write, and then you would roll it up, and the other side would be blank. And so the only reason you would actually use the other side is, well, two reasons. One, you were just too poor to buy another, another scroll to continue writing. Or you really wanted to keep all the information in one place. And so you would run out of the scroll, you'd turn it over, and you'd start over on the other side. So for example, if you were making a will for yourself or for someone else, and you're thinking, okay, all of the will has to be in one place, because somebody may lose that other scroll, and then we're left with half of the will. And so if the will was long, you would write it on the other side. And usually they would be about 32 to 34 sheets of papyrus uh, stitched together. And so when you get to the end of it, you would either go on the other side or you would pick up another scroll. One more cool detail, okay? When you read the book of Luke, and then you read the book of Acts, that's actually one book, most of us who've studied that would, would know that. It's the same author, it's the same story, but it's two books in our Bible. And the reason is, is because he ran out of the scroll, and then he picked up another scroll, and now we have two books. 
He was wealthy enough that he could get another scroll, and we have Luke and Acts separately. But it's really just one, one story. Okay. So this is what's happening here. In the vision, we have God who has a scroll that's double-sided and sealed with seven seals. And the expectation is that something very important in the scroll is going to be revealed. But somebody has to break the seals and open the scroll. So the question is, what is in the scroll? Why is it so important that they're all waiting for someone to come and unroll the scroll and tell us what's inside? Again, if you read the book of Revelation, it's very clear that in the scroll are contained God's purposes for His creation. This is God saying, this is what I'm going to do with my world. Purposes for judgment and blessing. So the scroll contains God's plan for the world. And because it's God's plan, it's comprehensive, all of it is written in this one scroll. There are not two. It's just one scroll, double-sided, that all the information is contained in one place. And that scroll is going to reveal what God is going to do with His world, how He's going to judge evil, how He's going to reward the good. And in the scroll is that information, is that plan. It's sealed with seven seals, the perfection of seals, right? Nobody can open it unless they are authorized to do that. So this is what's happening here. This is the background. And the vision is, and I, I, want, you, I want us to get the, the dramatic effect of what's happening here, all these heavenly creatures are gathered around the throne. You got the, the four creatures, they're angelic beings. You got the 24 elders probably corresponding to the Israelite priests and Levites on earth. So you have these angelic heavenly beings. They're all gathered around the throne. God is holding the scroll, and they're all asking the same question. They're all asking, who can open it? Who can tell us what God is going to do with this world? This is the, the drama of apocalyptic literature. I mean, it's very exciting when you, when you get into the, the flow of a book like Revelation and you kind of try to get out of the mindset of we need to figure out how a particular political event corresponds to this. Once you get out of that mindset, you see the drama of what's happening. God is saying, here's my will for the world. But it's sealed like, like a will. It's sealed. And unless the seals are broken, it's not going to go into effect. This is how Romans, Roman wills worked. Somebody, an executor of the will, would have to come and break the seals, and only then the will is actually executed. And so this is the drama. They're gathered around. God is saying, here's my plan for the world. And they're all asking, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Who is qualified? Who is authorized to come and open this scroll? But no one can open it. Again, get the drama and the magnitude of what's happening. This is a universal scale. This is a cosmic happening. And God is saying, this is what I'm going to do, but no one can actually open the scroll to find out what's going to happen to the world. Now, this is particularly important to the recipients of the book of Revelation. If you read the beginning of the book, you know that this is written to persecuted churches. These are believers who are suffering under the unrighteous and oppressive rule of Rome. And so these believers who are actually being killed for their faith, who are asking this question, what is God going to do with us? How is God going to make it right? How is He going to punish our oppressors? And so they read this book, and they get to chapter 5, and they see this heavenly scene of God saying, this is what I'm going to do to the world. Presumably, 
to restore justice, presumably to punish evil, and yet no one can open the scroll to find out what's going to happen and if it's going to happen at all. Now, this, this longing for the scroll to be opened, for the seals to be broken, to see the world be set right, to see evil punished, and to see good rewarded. This is a universal human longing. In fact, I would say that any one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, any one of us, if we just spend time thinking about our world, it's hard to go longer than a couple of minutes without longing for a different resolution to this. When you just start thinking about the world, you start thinking about what's happening, the evil of the world, whether it's applied to you or to your family member, to your friend, or even just to unknown strangers on the news, you start longing for God to do something about that, right? I mean, it's, it's a natural human longing, and I think everybody longs for that. We're all thinking this, is, this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. So who's going to tell us? what God is going to do with this. How is God going to change that? Is there a God? Is there someone who will change this, who will bring justice, who will bring reward for righteousness, who will punish the evildoers, who will vindicate the victims? Who, who's going to, is there going to be a reckoning? At the end of this world, is there something that's coming that will set things right? That's, that's a human, universal human longing. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a, a funny illustration, okay, to, to show you that this is a universal human longing, and then we're going to get very serious very quickly, okay? There, there's a, a show called Modern Family. This may be the first time this show is referenced from this sacred pulpit. If you know that show, um, it's, it's a funny show. It's a show about family relationships and kind of how our culture is changing, uh, but this particular episode was very insightful to me. It's an episode where uh, the father of the family, who usually golfs on Sundays, finally convinces his son, who's about maybe eight or nine, to go golfing with him. Now, the son usually goes to church with his mom, who's very religious, and the dad is not religious at all. So there's a lot of tension in the family. And the kid goes golfing, which he enjoys. He enjoys being with his dad, but he is concerned that God is going to punish him because he's missing church. And all his life, he was told by his mom that you go to church on Sunday. And so they go to the golf course, and a conversation about existential matters uh, begins. So the kid said, says to his dad, he says, so you're not worried about getting in trouble with God? And the dad says, oh, I, I think he's got bigger things on his plate. The kid goes, so you're not worried about hell? And the dad says, let me let you in on a little secret, kid. There is no hell. The kid goes, seriously? No hell? This is fantastic. He says, this is great. There's no hell? And then he says, so, so everyone just goes to heaven? And the dad goes, yep, end of story. Everyone goes to heaven. And the kid says, even bad people? And he says, yeah, but they're in another section. They got this thing figured out. And the kid says, well, I'm thinking about this, this heaven of yours that's full of bad people. And he says, the dad says, well, not full, just, just tiniest fraction, but they're walled in. And the kid goes, but what if they break out? He says, well, they're surrounded by a lake of, of fire. <laughs> and the kid says, 
There are fiery lakes in heaven? This is turning into hell. <laughs> the dad says, calm down. Instead of thinking all morning what, what heaven's going to look like or not going to look like, who's where, if there is, even is a heaven, why don't we just concentrate on this beautiful, carefree day that's in front of us? And the kid says, I'd rather concentrate on something you just said. There might not even be a heaven. And the dad says, I don't know. And the kid says, well, you seem pretty sure of yourself this morning. So what happens after you die? There's just nothing. And the dad says, look, you're focusing too much on one little thing that I said. It was just a hunch, okay? And the kid says, a hunch? You're playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. <laughs> now, of course, this is a sitcom variation of deep existential questions that we all have. What happens to bad people? What happens to good people? What happens after we die? I mean, those are all legitimate questions. And yes, of course, friends, of course, we can just go play golf and not think about it, which is what the dad is doing. He doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to pay attention to that, but the kid does. And any one of us that pays attention to that, we come up with the same questions. What, how, how is God going to work it out? What is he going to do to restore justice, to punish evil, to reward good? How is God going to do that? And when you come to that question with full realization of your need for God to do something, like in this vision, and you see the scroll that is, contains that answer, right? God says, this is what I'm going to do. It's in the scroll. And yet no one can open it. You weep, just like John does. John is just weeping. As the angels are asking, who is worthy to open the scroll? John looks around and says, there's, there's nobody here. And he weeps. Now, I wonder if, if we identify with that sorrow, that deep despair. If there is no one worthy to enact God's purposes for blessing and judgment, there is simply no hope for us. This is a very dramatic moment. Now, when you think about all the evil in the world, I'll list some. Corrupt politicians, right? Children being abused. Countries torn apart by war. Christians being murdered. Poverty, addiction, whatever else you want to put on this list. When you think about that, does it make you want to weep? If there's no solution to this, there's only one honest response. We can distract ourselves, but if we're honestly engaging with that, if there's no solution to that, the only response is just weeping, just crying over this. You know, we're, we're getting more and more involved in Armstrong Elementary School, which is right down the road here, and we're learning things that are deeply disturbing. So many kids come to school hungry because the last meal they had was at school the previous day. So many children are in transitional housing and extended-stay hotels, not parented, not supervised. I mean, we're learning that. How do you respond to that? If no one is worthy to open the scroll, all we have left to do is just weep over them. The, the scandal in, uh, in the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania that just broke this, this past week, thousands of children sexually abused, thousands of children sexually abused, and, and those crimes covered up by an institution that is supposed to have integrity and faith. And I'm not picking on Catholics. It's, it's not just a Catholic problem. 
It's a human, sinful problem. People in authority often abuse their authority and take advantage of other people. Now, when you read those accounts, what else can we do but weep unless there's someone who can open the scroll? You see. We, we heard from my, my friend Volva, who's a pastor in Ukraine, and he was here last Sunday and, and talked to us about the war in the eastern part of Ukraine where... where that's my home country, and I don't have anybody in the East uh, that I'm related to, but the whole country is affected by, by this war, and you have two million people that are displaced, and they're flooding the capital city, and many of them have nothing, and they have no homes. They have no, I mean, it's just, you look at that, and you say, what else am I going to do but weep unless, unless there is something that is yet to happen that God is going to do about this world? And so when we think about these things, it makes sense to us why John would weep. But, of course, this is only the beginning. This is only the setup of what is happening here. Look at verse 5. John is not left weeping. In verse 5 we read, One of the elders said to me, to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. They found someone who was worthy to open the scroll. This is, John goes from weeping to extreme joy, seeing that the questions that he has, the evil that he has experienced, the evil that he observes, will actually be addressed by God himself through this person, this lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who was conquered, he can actually break the seals. He has the authority to break the seals and to open the scroll and to enact God's purposes for humanity. Judgment and blessing will come to pass, and it will all happen because of this person of Jesus. Let's read on verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now you remember, seven horns, absolute power and authority, seven eyes, perfect knowledge and wisdom. So here's this person who is a lion from the tribe of Judah, who's also a lamb. Now this is, this is curious, that the person who can open the scroll, the person who can break the seals, is both like a lion and a lamb. Now a lion makes sense, right? He's a royal animal, king of the jungle, somebody who can do powerful things. That makes sense, but, but a lamb? A lamb? And the focus of the rest of the passage is on the lamb. And later in, the, in Revelation, you read a lot about the lamb. Now, how is it that this Jesus, this person, the only person who's worthy to open the scroll is like a lion and a lamb at the same time? Because only in Christ, God's perfect judgment is executed, and God's gracious blessing is extended. Only because He's both lion and lamb that God's judgment can be executed and God's gracious blessing can be extended to us. Let me work it out a little bit more. Jesus was slain, so the lamb is a symbol of sacrifice. It's, it's what Jews would offer on the altar as a sacrifice. It's the blood of the lamb would cleanse them of their sins. So because he is a lamb, he was able to die for the guilt of humanity. 
He was slain for all the evil of the world. The judgment of God came on him. But because he is the Lion of Judah, he is the divine king, he is, in fact, God himself, he can offer forgiveness and restoration to anyone who trusts in him. The reason he is the only person who is able to open the scroll and enact God's purposes for humanity, which are both judgment and blessing, is because he is both the person who took on judgment and who has the authority to extend the blessing. This is why he is the only qualified person, because he is both God and man. He both died and rose again. He has the, the authority and power, but also the tenderness to extend God's offer of salvation. Now, no, one, no one else died for the world. No one else rose in victory over death. No one else can make things right with God. No one else has both power and grace. No one else is both God and human. No one else is both lion and lamb. Now, this is, this is great news for us, and I'm going to read you a passage from Jonathan Edwards' sermon. The sermon is called The Excellence of Christ, where he contrasts the lamb and lion qualities of God, of, of Christ, and he shows us how both the contrast and the, and the perfect combination of lion and lamb qualities in Christ actually draw us to himself. So let me read this passage. Edwards says, If you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God will never have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that He is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts you, you need not fear, but that you will be safe, for He is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear, but that you shall be accepted, for He is like a lamb to all who come to Him, and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness." It is true he has awful majesty. He is the great God, and he is infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the Creator. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor and worthy creature bold and come into him. You need not hesitate one moment but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he be a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies. But he will be a lamb to you. It could not have been conceived had it not been so in the person of Christ, that there could have been so much in any Savior that is inviting and tending to encourage sinners to trust in him. Oh, Jonathan Edwards, this is a great passage, even though it's, it's told to us in archaic language. But he's saying if he's both lion and lamb, you don't need to hesitate to go to him because he's as strong as a lion and he is as tender as a lamb. What an encouragement it is to us to, to go to him. And if you were this morning, if you're thinking, how would I go to him? Imagine him as a lion for your defense, and a lamb to invite you in 
and to accept you. Now, before we get to the last point of the sermon, I'd like to ask you, when you think about the world, when you think about the evil of the world, does it make sense to you without Jesus? Do you think there's hope for this world apart from Jesus? Now, if Jesus is not part of the picture, if he doesn't exist, why would we expect that this whole thing will end well for us? Now, sure, we can ignore it, but if we take time to consider this world, to consider ourselves, even our hearts, we need Jesus. We need someone like him. And only knowing him do you realize how many wonderful things are combined in him that are perfect to make him a worthy Savior for us. The lion and the lamb, slain for our sins and yet rising again to give us new life. Now, if you're here this morning, and maybe you're looking for meaning, maybe you're looking for hope, maybe you're looking for an explanation of this world, Maybe you're looking for a confirmation that there will be a reckoning, that things will be set right by someone who has the authority and the wisdom to do that. It is all connected to him, to Jesus. There's no answer outside of him. Nothing makes sense unless Jesus is in the picture. So my, my prayer and my, my hope for you, if you're not a believer today, run to him. Run to him. Cast yourself on him the Lion and the Lamb, who will welcome you and explain reality to you. And finally, let's look at the new song, my last point, the new song. Let's look at what happens when Jesus, this worthy Savior, the Lion and the Lamb, is revealed. Now, first, you have the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Those are the people who were asking who is worthy, right? They start singing a new song in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a new song in contrast to the song in Revelation 4 in the previous chapter, which was a song of praise to God for His creation. Now they're praising God for this new creation, the redemption, the restoration of the world. That's why it's a new song. It's a new work that God is doing in Christ. They're singing a new song to Him. But then hundreds of millions of angels join into this new song and sing in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There are seven, seven qualities that they ascribe to the Lamb. The sevenfold praise emphasizes Christ's perfection, His divinity, and the completion of His work of redemption. You see, these angels actually see Christ as He really is. And when they see Him, they say, you're perfect. And what you've done is perfect. That's, that's what these words mean, put together in this way, they see who he is and what he's done. And so they praise him. They join in the new song that the elders and the creatures are singing. And then finally, verse 13, there's another group that joins the song in verse 13. These are all the created beings everywhere in created order. These are all the beings that God created. To, now they come to Christ and they sing to him 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now everyone joins in the song. And we have a universal worship. The longing for a reckoning, the longing for God to make things right is fulfilled now in worship where they they see God actually being just and gracious. They see Christ for who He is and they respond in a new song. Let me give you quickly two traits of this worship that apply to us. So I'm going to match each trait with a warning to us. The first trait is this worship is decidedly Christ-centered. It is decidedly Christ-centered. Are they singing to God? Yes, but they're singing to God and to the Lamb. And sometimes they're just singing to the Lamb. Because there's no true worship unless Jesus is involved, unless Jesus is both the object of our worship and the mediator of our worship. All true worship has to do with Christ. One commentator said, the Lamb which is Jesus, is worthy to open the book for a threefold reason. He was slain, a historical fact. He purchased men unto God, the interpretation of that fact. And he made them a kingdom and priests, the result of the fact. And those who are now made a kingdom and priests to God are expressing this new worship, new Christ-centered worship to him. And here's a warning for us. Beware of Christless Christianity. Beware of Christless worship. The world doesn't make sense without Christ. We can't know God without Christ. Worship is impossible without Christ. And so when we gather, beware that we don't neglect Christ, the only reason we can gather and worship God. And many churches do that. You can write a lot of nice songs that mention, don't mention Jesus at all, and we will sing them with gusto, but it's not right. Jesus is the only person who makes sense of our worship. So for us to really worship, to truly worship, we worship Christ as the Lamb and the Lion who redeemed us. Number two, this worship is missional. It's Christ-centered, but it's also missional. Notice the ever-expanding circles of worship. It starts in heaven in the throne room with just the people and the the creatures in the inner circle. You have the the angels, you have the, the, the four creatures and the 24 elders. And then you got the angels. And by the way, that's all of the angels that are there. In the ancient world, the biggest number you had was 10,000 which is myriad. We use myriad as just this, you know, infinite number. But for them, myriad was 10,000. So they couldn't go any higher than 10,000. So they go 10,000s of 10,000s. That's the highest number they could think of. And that's the number of the angels worshiping the Lamb. And then when they're worshiping, you have all the creatures. Everybody bows their knee and lifts their voice in adoration of Christ. And it includes all kinds of worshipers, every tribe, every people, every age, gender. I mean, all of that is is included in this, this great group of worshipers. So here's a warning for us. 
beware of defining worship as exclusively personal and private. How many of us say, the worship was really good today because we mean I felt good during worship. It touched me. There's something was happening in me. That's fine. That's not all that worship is. Worship is this comprehensive thing that includes all parts of your life and not just singing. And it includes all sorts of people. And so when we worship, we're also proclaiming who God is and what He's done in Christ to other people. So when we worship, it matters how we worship, not only to us, but to others. Let me say this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it, I'm going to let you think about it, and, and we'll, we'll discuss it at some point because I think I'm going to be deliberately provocative here, okay? If our worship is true, our congregation will be diverse. If our worship is true, our congregation will be diverse because it will draw all sorts of people to God. When we worship well, the Lamb is exalted, and the Spirit of God draws all sorts of people to Him. And by diversity, I mean all sorts of diversity. Racial, absolutely. Our community is diverse. I mean age diversity. I mean disability, typical ability diversity. I mean gender diversity. I mean all those things because if we worship well, the Lamb draws all sorts of people to Himself. And yes, it will, it will even spill over this congregation and, and outside of this community. One of the great joys of Pastor in Chatham is knowing the, the great missionary legacy that we have. There are people from this congregation that were sent out to go to other countries to preach the gospel there. The missions conference that's coming up in October will highlight all of that and will encourage you again to renew your commitment to missions, maybe by going, certainly by praying, certainly by giving, certainly by supporting the ministry of the church and the missionaries that you know personally. That makes sense if our worship is true. It doesn't make sense if our worship is not true. If our worship is Christ-centered, it will draw other people to Christ. We're going to come to the communion table. Now I'm going to leave you just with one question, to kind of the final summary question to think about. Are you singing a new song of redemption this morning? As you saw this picture unfold, this drama unfold, as you saw the elders worshiping and the angels worshiping and all the creatures joining in, are you joining in with them? Are you singing a new song, a decidedly Christ-centered song that He is worthy to open the scroll and enact all God's purposes for our world and for His church? Are you part of this group of eternal worshipers.